0: So, Luke chapter one. We're gonna wrap up our series on Advent this week, which is um, like I've said before, or this throughout this series. I love Advent; it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, but specifically, I love the texts that we get to walk through during Advent um, because they're texts, not just of big picture things. Like I've said before, we see big picture stuff in these texts, but we see underneath those small stories, like irrelevant people working. I'm going to go grab it. Yeah, I forgot my, my little seat. Um, I appreciate it, though, Parker. You're looking out for me. Also, I love the Santa hat. I love the Christmas cheer. Um, but we see this, pic- this huge, big-picture story happening um, through very small and very irrelevant people. So we see first... Or we saw at first it first with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the couple who had been, found themselves completely hopeless, having not been able to have children, um, being in an old age, having no, no possible way of being able to have a child without God intervening. The Lord prophesied through Isaiah that this, this messenger would come out of the wilderness to announce Jesus. That was the big picture, but the small picture was that he used Zechariah and Elizabeth to bring John the Baptist into the picture, so he uses this awesome, this awesome moment in time where he's, he's prophesied John the Baptist to come through Isaiah, through, through generations of prophecy, and then it comes into, or uh, he uses this tiny couple who is somewhat irrelevant and used their hopelessness and gave them hope to start this big picture story. That's the first one that we saw. And then last week we got to look a little bit at Mary. It's a very similar thing, a teenage girl who had absolutely no power or status. And instead of coming to a Pharisee or instead of going to the temple to find who would, uh, who would give birth to the Son of God, they skip, or Gabriel skipped over Judea, skipped over Jerusalem entirely to find this girl in a no-good town in Galilee. He gave purpose to this girl who would ordinarily have had no other purpose other than bearing children. Now tonight, we get to see this expressed again by Mary, this sort of two-way street of big picture moment expressed through the mercy of God in a small and irrelevant person. We get to see that again tonight in this text is called The Magnificat, which is a song that Mary wrote after becoming pregnant with Jesus. Now we see what God did for her, but also what we're going to see tonight is what God does for his people in this song of praise. That's ultimately what this whole, this Magnificat is, is a song of praise from Mary. There's so many reasons that I love this text. It's an amazing uh, rich theological texts. There's so much awesome stuff to be taken from this. But my absolute favorite reason, or the reason I love this text so much is because it's written by a 14-year-old girl. 14-year-old girl. One of the, one of the most dynamic like theological statements and songs in the scriptures are written by this girl who is your guys' age. For some of you, you were older than Mary was whenever she wrote this. There's a movie called uh, Little Big League. I don't know if you guys ever saw it. I watched it growing up because for some reason in the 90s, someone decided they're going to make a lot of sports movies for children. So they made like Space Jam and Little Giants and Sandlot, Mighty Ducks, all these movies. Well, Little Big League was not one of my favorites. It was like a smaller tier movie, but I still watched it. It was about baseball, so obviously I watched it. It's about this 12-year-old kid who suddenly finds himself uh, as the owner of the Minnesota Twins, which is an outrageous story. Like, there's just no way that would ever happen. But he finds himself not only as the owner, but then decides, oh, I actually want to be the manager, too. So I want to, like, run the team. I want to be the coach, like, in the dugout. Which makes no sense. There's no way that would ever happen. But he, whenever he's telling the, the front office, like, oh, I want to be the manager, they're like, They're quizzing him. They're like, okay, let's, I'm going to give you some situations. We're going to see what you would do. He gives a situation, and we're, this has been a, a theme recently. I don't know why bunting has come up so much for me recently. But like, you guys know at this point that I hate bunting, like, Almost as much as I love Jesus, as I hate Bunting, um, but <clears throat> that was a joke. That was a joke. Um, um, no, they bring up this this situation that would require a button. He's like, "Why well, would we bump? Let's just let him swing away." And they're like, "Oh, that's uh, see. Obviously, you're not you're not cut out to do this. You did the wrong thing. You picked the wrong thing." But then he explains it, and it makes sense. Like, okay, well, it would actually be bad to do that here. This is in like the 1990s when this movie was made, like years before it was cool for me to be up here saying that Bunting is terrible, right? But this, this, I love this the visual. of This young kid who knows really shouldn't. He's kind of naive. Everyone sees him as naive, but he's saying this super like profound thing. And then whenever he explains himself, and they sort of get away from all of the like all this sort of like hard hardness to what they already think they understand about baseball, and they're like, wait a minute, that kind of makes sense. Right? Just this naive kid that says it. Well, Mary is this naive young girl. She delivers this astounding song of praise that has tremendous theological depth. It was because she had found the right answer. It wasn't because she was this like, profound young woman. It wasn't that she was like, theologically trained super well. The reason that she was able to sing this song of praise is because she knew that her Savior was now in her belly. <laughs> she knew that Jesus was the one who had been prophesied to come to, to redeem Israel. That Jesus was worth all of this praise. It's what led her to this praise. Song didn't come, like I said, from this amazing writer, or some girl that was just super smart compared to everybody else. It came out of an affection for Christ, a love for Jesus. That is everything. I used to talk about that way more than I think I do now. But that's, that's the question of do we actually love Jesus? Like, do we have an affection for Him? Or are our affections for Him being stirred up every single day? In this text, we're going to see sort of three key points where we're going to see what God did for Mary, what God's going to do for us, and what God is doing for his people. And it's all through Mary's affection for the Lord that we get these. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, in verse 46. We're going to read through verse 55. It says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant.'" For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he is he who is mighty has done great things in me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich has been he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, again, we're just thankful just for one more time to be able to gather together, to get to sing as a group one more time, to fellowship as a, as a group, and then ultimately to study your scriptures together as a group, Lord. I just pray that for the rest of this night, um, as we sort of close this year, Lord, I pray that we would just be undistracted by outside things. That our focus would not be on our phones, or our focus would not be on the person next to us, but that our focus would be on this song of praise for Mary. That we would leave this room filled with affection for you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. So, like I said, we see three three distinct things in this text. We see what God did for Mary, what God is going to do, for, or what God is doing for us, and then what God is going to do for Israel. This first thing we see of what God did for Mary is in verses 46 through 47. And it starts with her saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But he said, the important part is, that, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So the reason that she, is, that she is magnifying the Lord is because the Lord has looked upon her humble estate. What God did for her personally is why she is praising him. That's the root of her praise. In my estimation, this phrase, for he has looked upon his humble servant, is the most uh, or I think it's the, what guides this entire song. It's a starting point. It's a declaration from Mary. It isn't this sort of hopeful petition. It's a joyful recognition and acknowledgement of what God has already done. She uses this phrase, he has, eight different times in this text, which if you guys, are, if you guys like English at all, that's past tense. It says, he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. And then further down, She keeps saying, for he who is mighty has done great things. For his mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. It's past tense. It isn't her saying, he is going to help me. Jesus, I'm going to have Jesus, and he is going to redeem Israel. She's saying, Jesus has already done these things. He's already redeemed us. So what has God done for Mary that has led to this praise? It's the fact that he looked upon her humble estate. This word, looked, is crucial. It's not just... A passing glance. It's not just like like almost like if a celebrity might see you and like you wave at them. And you're like oh hey, it's not that kind of look. She was seen by God. God paused and was was uh, considering her. It makes me think of this this time I went to a Royals game and I was sitting in like the nosebleed section and these people found us and they apparently they would go up and find like just people in the upper deck like. Families in the upper deck, and they found us, and they took us down, and we got to sit by, behind home plate, got a bunch of, like, free food, it was amazing, but we're sitting on the first base side, which is the Royals dugout, and this guy named Salvador Perez is in the on-deck circle, who's, like, a superstar in Kansas City, so, like, if you're a baseball fan in Kansas City, you love him, so I'm sitting there, and this is, like, I don't know, like, a, it was a while ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, um, but I, like, yelled at him, I was, like, hey, Sal, what's up, and he, like, looked at me and, like, waved at me, and for me in the moment, I was, like, oh, my gosh, Sal, Sal just waved at me. That was amazing. Now, think, like, the the reverence that I even showed him in that moment. He was, like, this otherworldly figure to me. (laughs) But, like, how this is going to sound super, like, uh, almost not exaggerating enough. But, like, think about how small Salvador Perez is compared to the God of the universe. That, like, I would have that response to him. We see the same sort of thing, only so much more. For Mary, and it wasn't just a casual like head nod or wave that I got from him. The Lord looked upon her humble estate, which she had no value and chose her specifically to carry Jesus. She's acknowledging that nobody else would have cared to look at her humble estate, but Jesus did. The Lord did. It shows us that the Lord cares for the needy, not in like a pitying way. Not in like a way that we care for a needy person by like buying them food. He cares for the needy and for the lowly by choosing us to exercise his will through. He did not just look at Mary and say, you're blessed, like I I found favor in you, you're doing great, keep up the good work. He didn't just do that, he said, you're gonna carry the son of God. He chose her. It's a really old guy named Augustine, super awesome writer. But he says that for those who learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. The Lord comes to those who who are of a humble estate every single time. This was happening with Mary. She's thankful that God sees her, but also also that God has done great things for her. He says that, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Think about pregnant Mary, just every single morning waking up, realizing, oh, Jesus, the Messiah, I'm carrying the Messiah. This was for like nine months that she had this realization. Every single day she had this realization. Think of the wonder, the sort of awe that would come from that. And again, Note this sort of personal touch here. It says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary is noting the great things, the specific things that the Lord had done in her own life. She had seen God mightily work through her and this sparked praise and joy. Most importantly, though, Mary had been led to praise because God had saved her. So not only had he looked upon her humble estate, right? Right? But it says that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So what Mary ultimately got out of this transaction was that God had saved her, just like anybody else. I love Mary. She's one of my favorite characters in the scriptures. She's no different, fundamentally, as a person than any of us here, other than the fact that she carried Jesus. Like, that is obviously a really big thing. But, like, fundamentally, as a person, she was no different than us. She needed Jesus as much as Jesus seemingly needed her as as his mother, (laughs) She needed him just the same way that we need Jesus. So in verse 7, she rejoices at this. Worshiping God, her Savior, in a past tense way, even though Jesus had not been born yet. Worshiping God, her Savior. She'd encountered this God. Mary didn't need any more proof. Mary didn't need to see what Jesus was going to do whenever Jesus was born, right? To, To worship him. She didn't need that. She'd encountered God already and that responded in her believing in his grace and his mercy and praising him for it. Believing upon his grace and his goodness because, affection for, because of her newfound affection for God. That's super important that we find our affection in the Lord from his grace and his mercy, not just from whenever he delivers on circumstances in our lives, if that makes sense. That Mary... Again, consider where Mary was at in her life right now. She's obviously pumped. She's very happy that this is happening. She's praising God for it. But she also knew that, okay, I could get stoned for this. <laughs> they're going to think that I committed adultery. Like, they're going to take me out and stone me. She, she wasn't dependent on what Jesus was going to do. She already trusted and believed. It was already enough. What God had told her, what Gabriel had said that the Lord told her, was enough for her to believe, to, to believe upon Christ in that moment. Her soul magnifies God because of it. R. Kent Hughes says that, of course, God cannot be any bigger, but He can be enlarged in one's life, in one's soul or spirit, as Mary put it. So, whenever it says that the Lord, or that she magnified the Lord, God cannot be any bigger in her life, but in our own personal lives and our own affections, we can magnify the Lord. We can choose to magnify the Lord instead of choosing other things. When we have affection for Christ, for what he has done for us, for his past tense grace and mercy, and for his looking upon our humble estate, our souls begin to magnify him and reduce everything else, almost like without us even trying. If, that's, if we're in the right mindset, if we recognize what the Lord has done for us, we'll start to see certain things be moved out of our lives and uh, have lesser priority than Christ. We start to find our all in all in him. We don't have to try. That's one of the biggest catch-22s. It's one of the hardest things to explain uh, from this perspective. It's like, well, how, how do I follow the Lord, devote myself to the Lord? How do I find that affection for the Lord? And it's really a difficult question to answer because like, I can't really give you like a formula of how to do it. I can't tell you how to do it. It just sort of happens naturally as, though, as you allow the Holy Spirit to move in your life, as you surrender yourself to Christ every day. It doesn't just come from showing up to church or memorizing Bible verses. It comes from experiencing transformation. That's that's what the church sort of tells, or doesn't want, I want to say doesn't want, doesn't really tell us. So it isn't just about going to church, getting plugged into a life group, serving. You need to see soul transformation. You see life change. Whenever we see that life change, that's whenever you're going to start to feel that affection for the Lord that Mary felt. I desire to have this, this joy that Mary's experiencing now of her saying, I, my soul magnifies the Lord. I desire that. I'm 27 years old. This is a 14-year-old girl. I desire that. She, this is a f- childlike faith kind of situation <laughs> where she did not have to have all these exterior things to trust in the Lord. She just trusted in the Lord because the Lord spoke to her and said to trust in him. So she experienced that personally, but she also recognized what God would do, through other, or do in other people through this. So let's look at what God does for us starting in verse 49. Or no, verse 50, sorry. It says, for his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his army and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich of, he has sent away empty. So in light of God's salvation in her own life, God, Mary sees this mercy and grace is for her, but then also puts two and two together of, well, if he looked upon my humble estate, then surely he's going to look upon other people's humble estate. Surely he's going to work at other people's lives too. We see also, again, that humility is a prerequisite for this mercy. That We've kind of seen this a little bit just throughout this Advent season of, of God coming to humble people, right? Not to, not to huge, like, uh, like super important priests or super important Pharisees. He comes to humble people. Humility is a prerequisite. His mercy is for those who fear him, is what she says. She saw... She saw this, this mercy on her humble estate and knew that it was for other people too. This is, this is an all-encompassing thing whenever she says uh, that his mercy is for those who fear him. It's all-encompassing. She's saying that if you fear the Lord, he will show mercy to you, period. Not just her, not just the Pharisees, anyone. That's humility though. That's recognizing that for her of all people, she recognized if God loves me, I'm the lowest of the low. Surely God loves everyone else or God will look upon everyone else's humblest state too. Notice that she doesn't say that if you're zealous for the Lord, he will show you mercy. Surely, obviously, zealous is important for the Christian. We should be devoted to the Lord, but she doesn't say if you're as righteous as the Pharisees, you'll find mercy. She says if you fear the Lord, you'll find mercy. Those who lower themselves, who humble themselves before God, and that prize, that's the prize, his mercy. There's a guy named John Don, I think is his name, how do you pronounce it? I actually don't know this guy. I just found this quote and I really liked it this week. It's D-O-N-N-E. I don't know how to pronounce that. I think it's Don. I don't know. Uh, but he says this. He says that God's mercy has no relation to time, no limitation in time. Whom God loves, he loves to the end. And not only their end, not, to, not only to their end, to their death, but to his end. And his end is that he might love them still. So what he's saying is that not only will God, if he he loves you now, he loves you permanently. I talked about that a few weeks ago, about how God's love is like the sun. Like the sun never stops being hot, ever. Like you can ask the sun to stop being hot. You can say mean things about the sun, but it's gonna be hot all the time, regardless of what you say about it. If you say like, you're so cold today, like it's gonna still be hot. The same thing applies to God's love. It's always, it's always existent. It's his being, but not just in our lives, not just like while we're here. He loved us, before we got here, he's going to love us well past when we're gone. This never ending mercy is what God does for his people, what God gives to people who fear him, who humble themselves. He gives more grace, more mercy. She notes this mercy in three different forms in verses 51 through 53. We see it in that he will protect his people, exalt his people, and satisfy his people. So look at, I'm actually going to flip back to verse 49, I think. No not 49, 51, where he says he's shown strength with his arm. He's shown strength with his arm. This protection, protecting the lowly, protecting the needy. Keep all these kind of in mind. We're going to go through these, but as we get to our last point, we want to remember these. Whenever she writes that he protects her or that she, uh, he has, she's seen the strength of his arm, that's a shot at pride. Whenever he says he has scattered the proud, he's like, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> I am stronger than you. He protects the humble, the weak. He protects those who fear him. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, believer, until you can drain the ocean dry of his omnipotence, which means his like, all-powerfulness. That's the best way to describe that. Until you can drain the ocean dry drive his omnipotence and break the towering mountains of almighty strength into pieces, you never need to be afraid. Don't think that the strength of a human shall ever be able to overcome the power of God. As long as the earth's huge pillars stand, you have enough reason to remain firm in your faith. While he is able to uphold the universe, don't even dream that he will prove unable to fulfill his own promise. The Lord always protects his people. He protected Mary, right? Like we know that Mary didn't get stoned for adultery. Like he protected her from that. And then whenever Jesus is born, he protects uh, Mary and Jesus from Herod, who's chasing after him, right? Supernaturally protected them. We saw it with Daniel. God supernaturally protected Daniel. Literally bound up the lion's mouth in the lion's den. That's protection. Supernaturally protecting his people. Secondly, we see that the Lord exalts us in his mercy. It says that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The mighty are brought down off of their thrones. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Right? We see these mighty being brought down, but not just these mighty being brought down, but the, 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 um, he, him exalting those of humble estate. Right, Abraham, too old. Straight up, like super old. Jeremiah was too young. Daniel was too small. Moses, not Daniel, David. David was too small. Daniel, I don't know how tall Daniel was. David was too small. Moses couldn't talk. You can get into this more if you want to go the Mary route. Ruth was a woman. Mary was a woman. Anna was a woman. Lydia was a woman. Just in case you need any proof, the Lord exalts women too. And, the, and women in the Old Testament had no power at all. So whenever we, whenever we see that, that the Lord exalts those in a humble estate, we have proof of it. Like we have the receipts in the Old Testament. Like he did it, we can see it. The Lord takes the proud, lowers them by exalting the humble so long as we fear the, fear the Lord. That's the kicker here. These people were not just exalted because they were humble, because they were a humble estate. They were exalted because they were of a humble estate, and they believed and had faith in that humble estate, which that's harder. It's, 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 I will not want to say it's easy. It's easy to be in a humble estate because you don't have any control of that. It's harder to believe and have faith in God's grace and mercy whenever you're in a humble estate, when you're in a humble estate, or of, a, of a humble estate, when you are married and have no power, have no sort of, don't get to drive the direction of your life at all. It's harder. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. That's what Jesus says. It's for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Whenever we, this is the sort of text that reminds me of that, where the, the world would tell us, like, well, up in, like, all these, like, like, executives, you know, like Elon Musk, these kind of guys, like, billions of dollars, like, nothing can touch them. Nothing can touch them up there, but God can. God humbles every person, if they like it or not. Like, God will humble us. So for those who are fearing the Lord, if we, if we sit there and we, we might get frustrated seeing maybe the successes of people that are not following the Lord. we getting frustrated that even the, your lot at school. I remember at school, like, I was in a nice little, like, bubble. Like, I was friends with all the baseball players, all the athletes. I wasn't really, like, great friends with them. You know, I wasn't, like, doing all the stuff they were doing. But, like, I kind of had their like, almost, like, unspoken protection. Like, I was with that crowd. Like, I'm sure that, like, you might be at school. That might not be the case for you. Like if you're if you're in school and you're like man I tired of these people messing with me <laughs> I'm tired of these people picking on me well, as a as a Christian we can trust that the Lord always exalts those of a humble estate that He is seeing you and lastly the Lord satisfies us with His mercy it says that He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. This isn't just about physical food or physical riches either, although that's part of it. This is about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus says in, uh, I think it's Matthew 5. Actually, ironically, it's Mary's speaking something very similar to what, Matthew, or what Jesus will say in Matthew 5, whenever he says, blessed are those who continually hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger for wealth and things like that will be sent away. We, the funny thing about this is we've been seeing this all throughout Ecclesiastes. I thought it was my phone for a second, but I was like, "No, that's not my phone." Um, my phone's been going off in church for some reason recently. But, um, no, but we've seen this in Ecclesiastes, this, and even with this man, the man that came up to Jesus wanted to ask, like, how, "How can I inherit the kingdom of God?" He said, "Sell everything, everything that belongs to you," and he walks away sad. He's like, "I can't do that." Left with, left with nothing. Couldn't bear to see all of his things be given away. Couldn't pass up on the satisfaction of having all of his things be given away. But the satisfaction he was passing up on was so much greater than the wealth that he was seeking. So the whole message of Ecclesiastes, that chasing after wealth, possessions, and earthly satisfaction its vanity. For those who turn to the Lord, they will not be left unsatisfied. It says that the Lord fills the hungry with good things. If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, the Lord will give us those good things. It will give us satisfaction that we can't find in those other things that we search for. But beyond that, so Mary's not just speaking about what the Lord had done for her personally or what the Lord is doing for like individuals, other individuals, but he's speaking about what God has done for humanity and his people as a whole. So look at verse 54 as we start to wrap up. She says that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The cool thing about verses 50 through 53 is that they can be applied to us as individuals. Like We can see those things happening in real life. The Lord defending us, the Lord exalting those of humble estate, Him filling us, giving us satisfaction. We can see those individually, but they're also prophetic of what God was planning to do through Jesus. Mary finished by saying He had helped His servant Israel, this is my favorite part, in remembrance of His mercy. I love the way that this ends. The first, she she says that God has helped his servant. Again, past tense. God had already redeemed Israel. It was already a done deal. And whenever Jesus, even though Jesus had not even been born yet, she's already proclaiming that this Jesus was going to redeem Israel. He was the one that was going to do that. Before Jesus had even breathed a breath on this earth, Mary was convinced that he was who he said he was. Which is pretty amazing. But it makes Verses 51 through 53, all the more prophetic, because all throughout the Old Testament we see God showing the strength of his arm, right? Scattering the proud. We think about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and then again showed this strength by binding them mouth of the lion in the lion's den. But in light of verses 54 through 55, this is not just remembering this. This is prophetic now. This is this is Mary saying, Well, that stuff that happened. Well, Jesus is going to do it again. <laughs> but this time for good, like permanently. And it says he brought many mighty men off their throne, exalting people like Moses or Ruth or David. But in light of verse 54 through 55, again, it's showing that he's going to do it again through Jesus, but permanently this time. Filling the hungry with good things, both physically and his protection, right? In the Old Testament, we see him protecting the oppressed people that we, that we study about in Amos. Or his provision of manna to his people, right? Or even spiritually, in books like Ecclesiastes, showing us you will not be satisfied in wealth. You need to be satisfied in the Lord only. So we see that in the Old Testament, but again, in light of verses 54 and 55, showing that he's going to do this again, but permanently. The satisfaction that's found in God through Jesus is going to be permanent. There's not going to be any more tears, any more pain. I actually don't remember who that's at. It's, and I think it's in Revelation, maybe. I don't know. But there, the, at some point, what Mary is, what is singing about right now is that this satisfaction, this hunger, for righteousness, eventually will be completely satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. That's coming, and that is through Jesus that it's going to come. He'd already done those things. He'd already, lo- he'd already done all, these, all this stuff in the Old Testament. But for his people that had been waiting in pain and in suffering and in exile, looking for their Messiah, Mary is calling them to look back again at what God had done throughout the ages and telling them that Jesus is here to finish it. He's here to, to complete it. So quote Spurgeon one more time. He says, remember what he did in ages past in the former generations. Remember how he spoke and it was done. How he commanded and it stood fast. Shall he that created the world grow weary? What Spurgeon's saying is if we've seen him do it before, over and over again, surely the Lord is not going to grow weary. He's not going to back off of these promises. Mary's message to God's people is that God has not grown weary. In fact, again, take note of what she says. My favorite part when he says, in remembrance of his mercy, because it shows us that God's mercy is not just on a whim. It's not that he just felt it and all of a sudden was like, I'm going to redeem Israel. I know they've been in pain for a really long time. I know they've been waiting for their Messiah. I know the Gentiles have no hope at all, so I'm sure they would like to have some sort of Messiah. And he's like, let's just send Jesus. That's not the case. It was the promise that God gave back in Genesis, 3, or Genesis 12 where he tells Abraham that uh, through him he's going to make all the families of the world satisfied. When he promises this all the way back in Genesis 12, this moment of Jesus, of Mary writing this, saying that he had remembered. Saying that God never stopped remembering Israel in every exile, in every single moment where it looked like it was over. God had never forgotten He had had known what was going to happen from the very beginning. He didn't just exercise mercy. He's remembering his promise. And as Christians, as Christians today, we can take hope in that. I like to quote often that whenever Job, if you've read Job, you'll notice that at some point uh, the accuser is asking if he can test Job. And and, and God is saying, well, you can test Job. He's a a faithful man. (laughs) He'll stay faithful to me. He's like pleading job's case to the to the accuser saying he won't cave but i always notice that job doesn't know that job doesn't know that god's up there pleading his case job only knows that a house just fell on all of his kids and killed him that all of his livestock's dying that's all that job knows he doesn't know that god remembered he probably thought that god didn't remember. if you actually read job you'll hear him say to his friends like well, even his friends say what'd you do man you better repent you did something He doesn't know that God remembers, but God remembered. So as we close, this should lead us to the exact same response that it led Mary to. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The promises of God are 100%. It's a yes and amen. There is no if God's promises will come to pass. It is when God's promises will come to pass. This leads us to magnify the Lord. And as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate remembering that God remembered one of my favorite things about the Old Testament, whenever we see some, whenever we'll see an instance where it says that God remembered, it's not that God ever forgot. It's not that's not the point. God doesn't experience emotion the same way that we do. Remember what I, the sun analogy I keep saying? It? God doesn't experience emotion the same way. He is constant all the time. So when it says that He remembered, it's not saying He forgotten and He's like, oh shoot, I'm supposed to help the Israelites. That's not what it's saying. It's specifically saying that in God's mind, He had us. <laughs> he saw us and chose to redeem us, remembering our pain, remembering our suffering. God allowed his people to go through the wilderness that they, they sinned. They, he disciplined them for their sin, allowing them to live in their sin for generations. But not once, not a single time did God forget his promise to them, ever. Not a single time. I think of even in, just at the start of it in Genesis with Abraham, the years that go between the first time God promises, makes a promise to him in Genesis 12 to, I think, Genesis 15, it's like several decades that Abraham's out there doing nonsense, like giving his wife away to Pharaoh or to Egyptian, doing stuff like that, Making, doing everything in his power to make God say, you know what, maybe not. Like, maybe I should, like, go find someone else. But God doesn't do that. God comes back to him and is like, listen, my promise is still there. I haven't forgotten it. I'm, Isaac's coming our soul should magnify the Lord because he is so good to us, so good to remember his mercy, to remember his promises for us. Think about how Mary must have felt singing this song. Like, I know that God remembers. I, I read in the Old Testament, she would have known these things, going to temple, right, knowing, having these scriptures taught to her. But she must have been thinking, like, I, I, he remembered me specifically, though? I <laughs> thought that was just Israel, not, not actually me. I saw something this week on Twitter. This pastor. This is a bad place. Twitter is a bad place sometimes. But I saw this pastor that was like, he was like, do we spend too much time talking about the birth narrative? He was essentially saying, like, it's such a small story. There's so few, like, pages devoted to it, but, like, one month every single year we spend time preaching on it. First of all, I'm like, come on, man. I did not expect to see a pastor, like, saying I don't want to preach about Jesus being born. I wasn't on my bingo card today. But at the same time, my thought was, we're missing the point if we just think it's about a supernatural like birth. <laughs> that it's just about, oh, Jesus was born to, to a virgin. That's, that's the sign, right? To show us that he was God. It's so much more than that. It's so short-sighted. This is the culmination of generations of waiting, of generations of promise, all coming to fruition in a single moment. The angst of God's people being relieved in an instant. We don't get to preach through it this year, but I think about uh, what we would have preached next week if we had four weeks of Advent was... Whenever Jesus is presented at the temple, and he sees, and Simeon and Anna are there, two people who had been faithfully coming to the temple for their entire lives, never expecting or knowing they were ever going to see the Messiah. And they walk in the temple one day and get to see Jesus. And all that life worth of waiting, that life's worth of waiting to see, maybe I'll see, my, maybe I'll see my Messiah, maybe not. They walk in that day, and they're like, oh, I, I, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah, I get to see him. And you see that God remembered them too. This is what Advent is, remembering that God remembers and it should fill us with affection for him. So if Hannah, if you'd come up and if you'd all stand with me tonight. This is is a chance for us to do two things. It's a chance for us to remind ourselves that God remembers us. God has not forgotten his promises. And it's a chance for us to do what Mary did Whenever she was given the option, whenever, whenever Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to have a son, his name's going to be Jesus, given the option to, to believe upon Christ as her Savior, to, to surrender to God in that moment. For the non-Christian in the room, the response is so simple, to believe upon Christ. He wasn't just born. He, he lived, he died, he resurrected for the sins of people who couldn't fix themselves. He came for people like Mary. People who God shouldn't have shown any love or affection for—that's exactly the person that He came for. That's us. If you're hungry and looking for satisfaction in this life, and I know that at your age—I mean, maybe like more in high school, but still at your age in middle school too—I know there's like this desire in you to find satisfaction in something, looking for something to sort of fill you, because you're hungry for something. But we, whether it's whether it's Hobbies, or, or status, or sports, or girls or boys, whatever it might be, you're not going to find satisfaction in it. But Jesus promises that whoever drinks the living water, the water will not thirst again. And Mary tells us that the Lord fills the hungry. So if you're searching tonight, I would encourage you to come and repent and believe in, upon Jesus. That's not just that's not just for for the if like a new person showed up and like maybe they're not a Christian. That's not just for them. That's for anybody in this room that doesn't believe in Jesus, that might have thought they did but didn't. And then for the Christian, we already know what God did for us. But we might we might need to be reminded that God remembers us. That God has not lost sight of us. That Israel, if all of of all people, to think that God had forgotten them, it was Israel. Remember we talked about the intertestamental period before this story, before Gabriel came and spoke to Zechariah, the Lord had not spoken for two, three hundred years. So if anybody could have felt like God had forgotten, them, it was the Israelites. It was, it was Israel. But God had not forgotten them. So we might not we might need to remind ourselves tonight, if we're in the wilderness, that the Lord has not lost sight of you. If he remembers his promises that Christ has surely not out-promised himself. But just because it does not look good in the moment. If you don't see that promise now, it does not mean he's forgotten about it. So we're going to open up now for just a time of response. If you need to pray, like I said, my alarm almost went off. Two seconds, almost happened again. That was close, man. Oh, but tonight, just as we wrap up, we're not going to have any service next week. We're going to take a, just a week off when we come back for the new year. But again, I would, I would encourage you tonight, if you're, if you're feeling burdened, if you feel maybe, like, like I said tonight, forgotten, like the Lord isn't remembering you, I'd encourage you to pray tonight. Use this last few minutes, even if it's just in contemplative worship. Even if it's just sitting, worshiping, magnifying the Lord with our souls. Even if that's, if it, even if that's what it looks like. Or if, it, if you need to talk to someone, talk, grab someone, I'll be down here to pray with you. And it, like, lastly, if you're not a Christian, you don't know the Lord, please, tonight, repent. Don't leave without knowing Jesus. Let's worship.